assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Shiva Prabhupada and Mahon Shukrana. Krishna Prashtaya Hutala Shimati Bhakti Bhakti Swami Nityajana. Namaste Saraswati Deva Gorahani Kachani Vasesi Sumerani Paskachari Satana Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Uta Parakamalama Sri Guru Vaishnavams Chak Sri Rupam Sadhvajatam Sahagana Raghunakam Vitam Stam Satinam Sadvaitam Sadvaditam Parijana Sanita Krishna Chaitam Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sadhana Lalita Sri Vishakam Vitam Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Sydney, Australia, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 5, Chapter 3, Vishabdev's Appearance, Text 19. So again, context for those of you who weren't here. This is King Nabi with his queen Merudevi. Nabi is the son of Agnidra and the goddess Purvachiti. Merudevi is the daughter of Meru. And in order to do their responsibility, their duty of making sure that there's a successor in the kingdom, they're wanting to have a child. But they have asked the Brahmin priests, the Vitvija, to ask the Lord to give a child like himself. And he said, there's nobody like me, so I'll come. So the previous verse, which was uh, the Lord himself, Vishnu, saying, since I cannot find anyone equal to me, I shall personally expand myself into plenary portion, and thus advent myself in the womb of Mary Devi, the wife of Maharaj Nabi, son of Agnidra. And previous to that, he said that the words of the Brahmins must always be truthful, so I will fulfill their request to appear. Okay, today's verse, text 19. This is just prose, so I'll just read it. Shisuka uvacha iti nisham yantya Mary Devi yaha Sri Sukha Uvacha. Sri Sukadev Goswami said. Iti. Thus. Nisamayantyaha. Who is listening? Merudevyaha. In the presence of Merudevi. Patim, unto her husband, Abhidhyaya, having spoken, Antardade, disappeared, Bhagavan, the Supreme Personality of God. Translation and purport by Srimakabhupada. Sukadev Goswami continued, after saying this, the Lord disappeared. The wife of King Nabi, Queen Merudevi, was sitting by the side of her husband, and consequently she could hear everything the Supreme Lord had spoken. Purport. According to the Vedic injunctions, 
one should perform sacrifices in the company of one's own wife. Therefore, Maharaj Nabi conducted his great sacrifice with his wife by his side. Of course, we read this many times in the Shastra, how husband and wife together are supposed to engage in sacrifice. We find in many religious traditions of the world it's not like that. You can go, there's certain places of worship you go in the world, and all the men are there, and there's a wall, there's a curtain, and the women are on the other side of the curtain. In many religious systems, only the men attend the religious ceremonies, and the women are home. I know that these two world religious traditions like this, where the women are simply home, and only the men are engaged in worship. The women can worship if they want to, but it doesn't really matter. And if they want to worship, they have to be in like another room. Uh, there's at least one religious tradition where uh, many uh, places of worship, the women are not even allowed in the building at all. Even though the founder of the religion, his first disciple was a woman. And so our Vedic tradition is different. As like Chula Prabhupada told Burjan Prabhu, and we've never done this, but this was his instruction, that when offering flowers to Prabhupada, the husband and wife should go up together. Together. Nobody's ever done that instruction, but that was one of Srila Prabhupada's instructions. And Prabhupada was so pleased when he would see husband and wife serving together. Our center in London was started by three couples. And Srila Prabhupada often remarked how his you know, lifetime renunciate monk godbrothers were not able to start a center, and these three married couples, one of whom had a very young child, was able to start the movement in London, you know, with headlines in the Times of London, or was it Krishna Chant Rocks London or something like that, and starting the Ratiyatra and, and so many things. Uh, so Srila Prabhupada was added this mood of reviving the original Vedic culture where persons are considered on the basis of spirituality, not on the basis of their body, and where, and where the women have full access to transcendence. So it is interesting, and perhaps expected, that even in our Hare Krishna movement, we have a section of persons who would like us to have systems more like these other religious traditions. So I find that of interest. You know, maybe that's where they took their birth last time, I'm not, I don't know exactly where that, <laughs> where that comes from, because that certainly is not Shiva Prabhupada's mood, nor is it the Vedic mood. And what's particularly interesting, I was consulting with one Vedic scholar on this point, and he said, when you go back very ancient, ancient, ancient Vedas, so you found that spiritually women had this, that equal access to the transcendental activities. There's many instances, and I didn't know I was going to give class on this verse till yesterday because I had the wrong order, so I didn't have the opportunity to do what I would have wanted to do otherwise. But there's many quotes from the Vedas that explain how originally, and we're talking about probably millions of years ago, that women were also giving sacred thread, they were also chanting all the Vedic mantras, they were also engaged as priests in the sacrifice, not just sitting there. And then there was a period of time when that stopped, when the Vedic mantras was only given to those born in Brahmin Satriya, only men born in Brahmin Satriya Vaishya families. So there's even today a group of Vaishnavas where when they give mantras to women, they don't have the women say om. They have them say am. 
because they're saying, oh, this way, we're giving the mantras, but not the Vedic mantra om. So there was this period of time, and Prabhupada refers to this period of time when, according to those Vedic standards, the women were not participatory. And now we see that Prabhupada has revived it. And I've thought uh, to some extent about this. <coughs> There's progressions in the world. So there was Buddha, who saw that people were killing animals on the strength of Vedic mantras. Therefore, he said, no Vedas. Just detachment from the world. Forget the Vedas. And then Sankaracharya, who said, oh no, you can understand Buddha's philosophy from the Vedas. Just look in the Vedas, and, and there's Buddha's philosophy, or close to it, impersonalism. And then Ramanujacharya, who said, oh, now that you're reading the Vedas, why don't you read them properly and see that they point to a personal God? Vishvadvaita. And then Madhvacharya, who said, well, now that you understand that there's a personal God, understand that there's also a difference between you and God. And then Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who said, actually, Ajintabeda Veda Tattva. We are both one with and different from God. And we find that Mahaprabhu especially was trying to cut down this spiritual qualification dependent on birth. We spoke quite a bit yesterday about how good children were born in society according to having marriages between equals and performing certain mystic rituals that would attract a child of a similar mentality. So this caste by birth was actually dependent on a system. It wasn't an absolute thing. But when people followed that system of marriage between equals and attracting similar-minded children, then you could determine those people's caste by birth because they had a scientific system. And we still have some concept of that in modern society. We still have some concept that there should be married between, marriage between equals, even in the West, where we don't talk about caste. There's still some idea that you, that, you know, for a doctor to marry a janitor is, especially if the woman is higher. So that's particularly look on. If the woman is from a higher socioeconomic strata, you know, higher education, higher occupation, it, we don't like it very much. And even according to the Vedas, if you, if you have a mix, if the man and women are not equal, the man should be higher. Not good if the woman's higher. Because naturally, psychologically, the man wants to be the hero. The man's natural psychology. And it's natural for the woman to want to be protected. So if the woman's protector is less than her, it's very awkward. It's very awkward. It's, it's almost like to keep the marriage happy, she has to lower her standards, which is not very nice for her. It doesn't put her in a good situation. And then there's not so much harmony also between the husband and wife. Anyway, we have some concept even now of, uh, we call it in sociology, ascribe status and achieve status. Ascribe status is what you're born into. Achieve status is what you do. And in Western countries like Australia, there's a concept that we only have achieve status. We have no ascribe status. We're a classless society. But of course, that's not true. Everybody has ascribed status. In fact, you can predict a person's test scores on academic exams simply and only by socioeconomic status of the family. That is the greatest predictor of how somebody will do academically. What to say? So that's still there. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu wanted to establish that spiritual qualification is not by body. Of course, he's not the first avatar to establish this. Uh, Lord Sri Ramachandra established this. Uh, who were the followers of Ramachandra? Monkeys. monkeys. Actually, monkeys. I mean, they were more sophisticated than any monkeys we see today because they could speak and they had some kind of a civilization and religion, but they were monkeys. Maybe they were like the Yeti or Bigfoot or something, I don't know. 
some monkey-like person. But they were monkeys. They were actually monkeys. They had tails. And they, could, and they had a somewhat of a monkey mentality also. After the monkeys found Sita, they destroyed the whole fruit orchard in their happiness. So that's the behavior of monkeys. Right? Or very young children, too. We also had Jatayu, a vulture, who was a devotee of Ramachandra. Guha, a tribal. So Ramachandra especially showed that spiritual qualification is not dependent on body. They weren't even human. I want to speak of types of human. Right? Or among human, another tribal was, uh, what's her name? With the berries. Shobri. So Shobri, so Guha was a tribal, and Shobri was a tribal. And you could see that in both, like Shobri, she still maintained some of her tribal customs. And yet she was a self-realized soul, God-realized soul, in divine love of God. So Ramachandra had shown this, that spiritual life is not dependent on one's material body. Why should it be? That's the first teaching of the Bhagavad Gita. So if we are not this body, if we are all equal, a learned person sees that everyone is spiritual, not just people, what to speak, people. They see even the insects. This is one of the reasons why we're vegetarian. Now we don't want we don't say, oh, that's so that has a soul has a lesser body. Let me torture them. But Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu he showed by making Haridas Thakur, who was born in a Muslim family, the acharya of chanting the holy name, the teacher of chanting the holy name. And Mahaprabhu was criticized not just by the Muslim rulers but by the Hindu intelligentsia. Just like Jesus was criticized also by the Jewish intelligentsia of his time. That, you know, we are the Jewish priests. Who are you preaching this philosophy of love of God? You're supposed to preach everybody to surrender to us. So Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu faced a similar situation that the Hindu Brahmanas of the time, they were the ones who went to the Kazi, the Muslim Kazi, and said, who is this man bringing the mantra to the people in general? This would be secret mantras chanted only by the most qualified persons. But, and we find also Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he had Sanatana Rupa Goswami, who had become like Muslims. They were serving the Muslim government. They had taken Muslim names. We never hear anything about their family life. I often wonder if they had Muslim wives. You know, they were, they'd become basically Muslims. And he made them the prime teachers of his philosophy. He gave so much instruction to Sanatana Goswami, to Rupa Goswami. They wrote books like Bhakti Vasamrita Sindhu, right? Upadesh Amrita. And they were not allowed by the prevailing social customs to enter into the Jagannath Puri temple. Therefore, we find Sanatana Goswami, when Mahaprabhu invited him to come, even though it was the hot season, you know, 45, 50 degrees. So he took the long path on the hot sand which blistered his feet just to avoid possibly touching the priests because he knew if I touch the priest, they'll think, oh, here's someone who was acting as a Muslim, I have to take a bath. So Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu didn't disturb that social etiquette. He didn't insist, he didn't go to Maharaj Pratikarudra and say, hey, let my followers into the temple. But he still established that his chief followers 
were from all different segments of society. And then we find Srila Prabhupada, he took things the next step. Just like we have Buddha to Sankara to Ramanujacharya to Madhvacharya to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Srila Prabhupada took this philosophy that everybody, at least every human being, everybody has an equal opportunity for spiritual life, and he actually demonstrated it. And Prabhupada specifically speaking about husband and wife serving together. He said, in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's time, the women were not going out with their husbands to preach. He said, but we want to show, he said, prove it by practical example that there's no bar for anyone in the preaching of Krishna consciousness. There's at least one instance where Srila Prabhupada asked one of his female second-initiated disciples to perform a fire jagya to, in, to uh, initiate her husband. <laughs> and her, uh, Prabhupada gave her husband second initiation through the male, Gaitri Mantra through the male. And he said, your wife is a duly initiated brahmana, she should perform the, she or any other duly initiated brahmana can perform the fire jagya. So this was Srila Prabhupada's mood. And it, was, it wasn't, people often think that this was some sort of concession to us proud, feminist, Western women. So I sometimes hear propaganda that, well, Prabhupada made those adjustments in the beginning of ISKCON because otherwise the feminist women wouldn't have come. And later on, he wanted us to go back to a, you know, caste-by-birth standard, at least for the women. But that we don't find that in Srila Prabhupada's teachings. It's not what we find. We find Srila Prabhupada saying consistently, like when being asked about deity worship, he was asking the women bathe Gornita. He said, yes, this is on the spiritual platform. Nobody asked him the men bathe Radharani. <laughs> Nobody asked that. So Srila Prabhupada established this over and over again. He asked women to preach. He asked women to lead kirtan. He asked women to do deity worship. When I joined, the, we didn't have a deity worship minister as such, but the person who did that was Shilavati, a woman. She was in charge of all the deity worship in Iskand. All, all of the questions about deity worship went to her. Now, while Srila Prabhupada was preaching like this, on the strength of the Shastra, on the strength of the tradition, he also preached that materially women cannot be equal to men, which was a big shock for us in the West at the time, because especially in the late 60s and 70s, there had been all this propaganda that the only difference between men and women is in their reproductive functions. Now, of course, since then, there's been a lot of evidence showing that there's many psychological differences between men and women. And, of course, there's also physiological differences besides reproduction in our ability to do athletics. For example, in America now, they have this law called Title IX, where every school has to give equal facility for women to do athletics. And the result is that the young girls are getting, I think it's uh, hip and ankle, they're getting certain kind of injuries over and over again because they're doing sporting activities that don't take into account their, phys their differences in physiology. Women have a different center of gravity and a different way of, of moving. And a I mean, everybody knows that, right? And a different musculature structure. And women have a different ratio even of fat to muscle. You know, if women become too muscular, they lose their fertility, for example. And we have different psychologies. I mean, now it's becoming common knowledge. They have books on the different psychologies between men and women. When Prabhupada was preaching, we didn't think like that. We thought men and women have the same psychology, which causes you all kinds of problems if you think that way, <laughs> because it's not, it doesn't work like that. So Prabhupada was making that point. On the material level, you'll not find equality. 
That's not possible. And the modern civilization tries to find material equality. You know, so my degrees are in education. And it's very interesting how they talk about material equality and at the same time they tell you there's no equality, privately. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. Everybody has an equal chance to learn, but I tell you, we all know that's not true. We all know that, we all know that there's certain groups of people who consistently just don't do as well educationally no matter what interventions are put in place, no matter what system of education there are. If you can get those groups up to average, everybody has a celebration. You, know, you just can't get them to excel. And we don't like to talk about these things. And people who've done the research on it, they publish books and the books are banned from the universities. You're not allowed to teach them. I'm even afraid to mention the name of some of these books. But they've done research that there's differences there's differences between men and women. There's differences between races in terms of what chemicals they have. What are the proportions of chemicals in their bloodstream? What kind of muscle mass do they have? What kind of, of intelligence? Of course, these are general. There's always individuals that are exceptions. But you cannot find equality materially. It's just not possible. How can we say that any two people in this room are fully materially equal in everything? Impossible. So I'm sure many people here are better than me in so many things. I'm better than some of you in so many things. It's just that's the way it is. These bodies are an expression of our previous karma, our previous actions. And therefore, they, this body and mind we have in this life represent how much we, what we desired and how much we deserve. Just like not everybody has the same car. Different cars are not equal. It's just rational. So Prabhupada would cut down this idea that you can make everybody equal on the material platform. You can't do it. Impossible. Therefore, the duties we do on the material platform are going to be different. We're not going to ask this young man to drive the truck. Although he's equally spiritual to any of us, spiritually to any of us, and you may be far more spiritually advanced than I. In realization, he may be more advanced than I am. But I'm going to drive the car and he's not. Okay? So materially there's distinction. The men are not going to start getting pregnant. Although there's one man in the Bhagavatam who got pregnant. Let them try to do that with their modern fertility interventions. But there, there's going to be some difference materially. And I talked yesterday, I talked yesterday about the fire in the pot. Yes, I did. So in the terms of fire, everybody can have the same fire. In terms of what pot we put on the fire, we all have different pots. Just what it is. So this requires intelligence to know how to discriminate between what are purely spiritual activities that's equal for everybody. And what are material activities, which can be spiritualized, but which are going to be different. This is the basic discrimination between matter and spirit. ABCs of spiritual life. What's material? What's spiritual? So spiritual is what? We were talking yesterday. What activities are spiritual? If I put you all to sleep. Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu, Smaranam. So anybody can hear about Krishna. It doesn't matter what kind of body you have. Anybody can chant about Krishna. As is all varieties of hearing, all varieties of chanting. Everybody can remember Krishna. It doesn't matter. 
200 IQ, you have a 20 IQ. You're a man, you're a woman, you're old, you're young. You're, you know, an athlete, you're in a wheelchair. You're from India, you're from Peru, you're from Nepal, you're from New Zealand, you're from China, even from America. <laughs> Doesn't matter. You can hear about Krishna, you can talk about Krishna, you can have kirtan, you can remember Krishna, you can serve his lotus feet, you can worship the deity, you can become Krishna's friend, you can surrender everything. That's for everybody. What you can be, what to speak of human being. You can be a dog, literally a dog. Not figuratively a dog. You can act, be an actual dog. Like Shivananda Saves dog. And you can hear and chant about Krishna. Prabhupada said, in our kirtan parties, even a child can take part, right? That famous, and even a dog can take part. So certainly women can take part. So there's some people, you know, children, dogs, that's fine, but the women. So those are the purely spiritual activities. Then we have the spiritualized material activities. We have activities that require a certain material qualification. Like you don't, you want risk-taking people, really adventurous, courageous, risk-taking people to run your treasury, right? No. What do you want to do with the risk-taking, courageous people? What service should they be doing? They can go do Sankirtan in the Muslim countries. Like we have these devotees now, second year in a row, they've taken the holy name to Albania. And what was it? Moldova, all these countries that nobody has ever gone before and where just recently it was illegal to be religious. And they were so scared to go there. And they're like, we're going to do this. Risk takers, or I met the devotee who started the movement in, in Indonesia. But they, you don't want those persons to manage the money. Who do you want to manage the money? A very careful person who's going to check everything three times. Right? And whenever you want to spend money, they're going to come to you and say, Prabhu, are you sure you really want to spend money on that? <laughs> they're going to research everything before they make any purchase. They're going to spend a half an hour researching all the places to purchase it and make sure they get the lowest price. You don't want one of those people to say, okay, yeah, we'll just take any. And so we have different personalities. We have different physical abilities. We have different mental abilities. We have different talents. We have, we have different inclinations. We don't all like to do everything. Even. There may be things I'm good at that I just don't enjoy doing. I'm miserable doing them. So this is where Prabhupada talks about the psychophysical nature, that we should engage people according to their psychophysical nature. And here there's differences, and there really are differences, and there are real differences. Of course, when everything's offered to Krishna, everything has equal value. So on the material level, one person is the temple president and the other person is washing the pots. And on a material level, the temple president is much more important than the pot washer. Harder to replace, has a more important role in the temple. But as far as Krishna's view, he doesn't love one more than the other and one service is not more valuable than the other. Each service is equally valuable and each service has an equal opportunity of being offered to Krishna with love and having Krishna accept it. So this is a bit of a science to see what are the spiritual activities, what are the material, and particularly 
You were talking about this yesterday. For what varna are they particularly difficult to distinguish what are material and spiritual activities? The Brahmana. Because the material activities of the Brahmana, not all of them, but most of them, are almost identical to spiritual activities, which is why, although you have equal spiritual facility by birth, if you've got a Brahmana mind and body, you have an advantage. But it also causes us some confusion, because Brahminical activities in one sense are material, but the externals of them are, are practically identical. I mean, there's some Brahminical occupations, like an astrologer or physician, that are not, but to be a pujari, to be a, a scholar of Sanskrit, to be a teacher of the Shastras, to research the Shastras, this can also fit into the hearing, chanting, remembering. Of course, that can also happen with other activities. For example, the shudra activities, you can have musicians and artists and dancers, and that can also be if you're singing music about Krishna, right, and you're dancing about Krishna, it can also look like it's almost identical, even on the external platform. So it takes some fine intelligence, just like Burjampuru asked Sri Prabhupada, referring to Burjampuru twice in one class, he, he asked Sri Prabhupada, how can you tell the difference between a principle and a detail? Prabhupada said, that requires intelligence. <laughs> I really love one letter Sri Prabhupada wrote about caring for Tulsi Devi. He answered like 20 questions, and for one of the answers he wrote, use your common sense, and if you don't have any, any ask someone who does. So uh, this may be a, a matter of real discrimination to tell what is the difference. In what areas do we engage everyone equally, and in what areas do we engage, or in the same types of activity? And in what areas do we engage people in very different kinds of activity according to their body and their mind? So this requires a lot of intelligence and also requires recognizing our own biases and making sure that our own biases are not interfering with that decision, that we're really looking at the example of the Shastra. So I thought that this verse and purport were very interesting from that perspective. I also thought they were very interesting from another perspective, and that is of the relationship between husband and wife in service, as opposed to preaching about detachment from husband to wife, wife to husband, attachment to family life, and attachment to the world. So this is another area of great confusion, and I see great pain and difficulty and spiritual obstacles because it's often so grossly misunderstood either on one extreme or the other. So you have people who think that detachment, because we're advised to be detached, you have to be detached from the material world to gain spiritual attachment. You must. Every religious system in the world is going to teach you this. It doesn't mean the practitioners are following it or preaching it now, but if you go to the scriptures, you'll find you have to be detached from the world. You cannot be a materialist and a spiritualist at the same time. You just can't. You know, like certain countries will give you dual citizenship. You can be a citizen of America and Australia, but you can't be a citizen of America and India. One of my friends became an Indian citizen, and they said, you'll have to renounce your American citizenship. They said, you want 30 days to think it over? You sure you want to give up your American citizenship? So spiritual life is like that. You have to renounce your citizenship under the government of illusion. 
You cannot be in the light of truth and be in the darkness at the same time. You just can't. You have to choose light or darkness. You have to choose truth or falsity. How can you say I'm lying and telling the truth at the same time? I mean, many people try, but you really can't. <laughs> Especially the politicians. What was our, our famous ex-president? It depends how you define is, he said. So they, they try to somehow, somehow lie without lying. But spiritually, you can't do that. If you want to be an illusion and falsity and darkness and confusion and anxiety and anger and fear and envy and lust, you can't also be in truth and in light and forgiveness and humility and kindness and joy and knowledge. You have to choose ignorance or knowledge, anxiety or bliss, fear or peace, lust or love, envy or compassion. You simply cannot have both. Now often those two things are just the same feeling used differently. <laughs> they're often not exactly a different feeling, but they're just redirecting it. Uh, but still, the, the injunction is like that. And one of the greatest bastions of illusion is thinking that I'm this body, <laughs> and therefore thinking that I have attractions based on the body. And one of the main attractions based on the body is sex. So therefore we are told, again, I don't care what spiritual or religious tradition you go to, this is one of the main teachings, that you can't be just a wanton sex monger and be a spiritualist. You just can't do it. I mean, again, there are many people who preach that you can, uh, but you can't. It just, just forget it. So if you have any aspirations of having an unrestricted, totally attached sexual life and attaining spiritual realization, you may leave now because it just isn't going to work. I'm really sorry to inform some of you must find this is a very terrible disappointment. Of course, the good news is that the real sexual pleasure we want, what we're looking for and not finding in sex, by the way, you don't find it in sex. You find something, but you don't find what you're really looking for. That what we're really looking for is found there in serving God and Krishna. That's what we're really looking for. That, that ecstasy of the joining of male and female is found when we serve Shishi Radha and Krishna. When we talk about giving pleasure to Krishna, Shimati Radharani is the pleasure potency. Anytime we talk about pleasing Krishna, Radharani is involved. Immediately. We are joining Krishna with his pleasure potency, and because we are part of Krishna, we also feel that happiness, like the hand feels happiness when the stomach is satisfied. And in order to experience that unlimited, anandam buddhivardhanam, Bhakti Siddhartha Saraswati commenting on this says, although we are infinitesimal, we are capable of experiencing unlimited happiness. Unlimited means unlimited in time. It doesn't have a beginning and an end. Right? Krishna says that the wise do not delight in the happiness of touch. Samsparshaja, boga. The happiness that's born of touch, they don't delight in it. Jukayoni, it is the birthplace of misery because it has a, ha a beginning and an end. Romantic enjoyment, whether gross, physical, or emotional. It all has a beginning and an end. 
You can't experience it continuously. And it doesn't get better and better and better. It just doesn't. After a while, it gets boring. I'm sorry. You know, if you have some illusions about this, I'm really sorry. But this is the reality. And that's one reason people in modern society, when such things are allowed, they go from one partner to another. And now it's become boring. They don't realize the problem isn't their partner. The problem is it's material. So the pleasure of serving Shri Shri Radha and Krishna never gets boring, never gets old. You don't have to get away from it. It's a honey to break, you know, to enjoy it again. And it's always increasing. That is the happiness we seek, and this is why those of us who chant the Hare Krishna mantra, if we chant with attention, become disgusted with ordinary sexual enjoyment. We just like, oh, who wants that? Why be interested in that? Even the best of that, even the best of the best of the best of that, what is it? It's nothing. Compared to what we have in the Hare Krishna mantra, where we are joining Radha and Krishna, we are joining in the celebration of Radha. So we are advised to be detached from this business. All right, if you're not fully detached, while you're falling in love with Radha Krishna, you can get married and have children and do something with it so that you're not going mad and causing disturbance in society. All right, we understand you're not going to immediately give up this attachment. But be careful. And its attachment is also an emotional attachment. Oh, my wife is the person who pleases my senses, therefore I love her. My husband is the person who pleases my senses, therefore I love her. And one can take birth again and again and again. Like Maharaj Agnija and Purvajiti, who were very spiritually advanced persons. They were not ordinary persons. And he became so attached to this Purvajiti, understandably. She's a goddess. I mean, we talk now about the New Age, how all women are goddess, but she was really a goddess. <laughs> she wasn't just a... <laughs> Oh, all women are goddess. She's actually goddess. And from Lord Brahma's planet. But he forgot that his relationship with her was service to the Supreme. He forgot that. Not entirely. But he forgot it enough so that yam yam bhavi smram bhavam twajitante kalevam tamtame vaitikante asadatam bhava bhavita. When he died, he thought about her. And he went instead of to the spiritual planets where he has an eternal form of bliss and knowledge, he went to her planet, to Lord planet, to be with her again. Now we sometimes think, though, that this strong teaching on detachment, which is necessary, if you don't teach about detachment, it's a cheating process. You are cheating people. You cannot say to people, remain in ignorance and come to the light at the same time. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work. But we think that this teaching about giving up ignorance means I hate the opposite sex. Or I hate money. No. What we hate, if you want to hate anything, is our own foolishness. Our own lusting instead of loving. Our own envying instead of rejoicing. Our being greedy for position instead of being greedy for love. If we hate anything, I don't know if we should hate anything, but if we hate anything, we should hate that. Or at least uh, be sad about it. <laughs> what a fool I am. What a fool I am. That I lust instead of love. That I'm greedy for power and position and money instead of being greedy for love of God. But not to hate the object of my material desires. 
You know, if I'm greedy for a cake and I have a problem controlling my weight, I don't blow up the bakeries in the city. And I don't hate the cake. It's not the fault of the poor cake. No, but somehow when it's another person, I think it's them. And particularly women end up getting hated. More than men get, oh, I know women who hate men also. Particularly women, and why women? Why does it go on the women? So the reason it goes on the women is that the form of woman, particularly, is, is a representation of illusion, of my deity. Right? Those of us who are in this life in male bodies, we want to be the master of illusion in the body of our wife or girlfriend. Those of us in this life in female bodies, we want to be the master of illusion in our own body. So our attachment to illusion is greater, those of us who have taken birth in female bodies. And you see that women use their bodies to try to entice persons into illusion. That's a fact. If you want to sell anything, put a woman's form there, isn't it? I mean, however much we talk about equality, you don't see the man in the bathing suit selling the car. It's always a woman. Even in the women's magazines, it's pictures of women. Isn't that interesting? In the men's magazines, there's pictures of women. In the women's magazines, there's pictures of women. Of course, the men lust and the women envy. So the feminine form is the symbol of illusion, is the symbol of material nature. Everybody knows this. Even the materialists know this. Even It's not some sort of a secret. But we're not to hate illusion in that sense, in terms of a person. We're to, we're to hate our tendency, our desire to be illusion, not illusion itself. <clears throat> the pers- ultimate personality of illusion, Maya Devi, she's also Vaishnavi. So spiritual life does not mean hating women. It just doesn't. How can that be spiritual life? And we see, what is spiritual life? Nabi and Meru Devi are sitting together in sacrifice. I was just visiting a nice family where husband and wife were dressing their deities together. Every morning they sit and they bathe their deities together. She's bathing, dressing Radharani, he's bathing, dressing Krishna. So nice. We, we hear about Sarvabhava Bhattacharya, how he and his wife were cooking together from Mahaprabhu. Adwaitacharya and his wife, they're also cooking together from Mahaprabhu. They're worshipping the deities together from Mahaprabhu. So we have to have some, because illusion particularly takes this form of attraction between men and women. It takes other main form is of attraction for material opulence and material power, which are very connected with the attachment between men and women, by the way. So they're, they're intertwined. So because we have to be very careful of these things, we're very careful, we should be very careful, about how men and women who are in a spiritual process interact with each other. We should remove physically opportunities for illicit connection. We should try to watch uh, how we dress, how we speak to each other, what we do with each other, to help each other to stay in truth and not in illusion. But we should always remember that this doesn't mean hating other people. That's not what it means. How is that spiritual? I, I don't understand how that's spiritual, to hate other people. and Or to make other people responsible for my being an illusion. You know, because you've got a beautiful 16-year-old female body, that, that's why I'm an illusion. No, I'm an illusion because I'm an illusion. Haridas Thakur, who 
You know, he saw this young, beautiful prostitute who tried to allure him, actually a prostitute who tried to, was trying to allure him, and his response was, why don't you chant Hare Krishna? In fact, Maya Devi herself came in front of him, which most of us couldn't deal with. You know, if, if the personification of illusion came in front of us, most of us would go, okay. In some way. I think that if we're honest, we'll admit that there's some kind and degree of illusion that we wouldn't be able to resist. But all of illusion came before Haridas, and he said, why don't you chant Hare Krishna? Sit down, chant Hare Krishna. And finally she said, may I become your disciple? Uh, so this is a very important aspect of building a spiritual society. How to have respect for, for everyone, how to give everyone an equal opportunity for purely spiritual activities, how to deal with the lust and illusion and envy in my own heart without hating the other people or the objects that may ignite those things. I mean, you have to have a sane life. If you want to lose weight, you don't keep cake in your refrigerator. If you want to be a celibate, don't flirt with the women. But don't hate the women. No, or don't hate the men. And how to give people an opportunity to advance in spiritual life. Now, how are we going to ultimately do this? We're not going to do this by rules. It's not going to... Rules are helpful. If you want to lose weight, you may have a rule, I just don't buy any sweets. You know, I just don't have a television in my house. People often ask me, what do I do with my television? I say, well, you go to the back of it and you follow the cord to the wall and you pull. <laughs> and then maybe chuck it out a window. Now, so we may make some practical measures for which we make some rules. There shouldn't be a man and woman alone in a room together or not married or something. But we're not going to conquer illusion by rules. Doesn't work, never has worked, never will work. We're not an international society for rules consciousness. We're only going to conquer illusion by coming into the light. That's all. Just like we're going to be honest that you can't be in both illusion and truth, we're also going to be honest that the only cure for illusion is truth. There's no way of dealing with illusion that's going to cure you from illusion. You deal with it this way and that way and make this rule and the other rule. And we have to realize that I'm the soul. I'm only going to be detached from the appetites and the inclinations of the body and mind when I realize I'm not the body and mind. I can't keep identifying with the body and say I'm going to be free from bodily appetites. How is that going to work? It's not. And coming to the light and the truth and reality in our Hare Krishna movement is so easy and natural and simple and anyone can do it. We are very, very, very blessed. So many people in the world who talk about spirituality, know something about spirituality, if they think the ultimate truth is impersonal, how are you going to fall in love with the impersonal? How are you going to turn our intense, very intense, pushing, blazing desires for material enjoyment, overwhelming, maddening to a light and a formless. We are meant to be madly in love. That's our nature. Not to 
just be, I'm in love. But to be, I'm in love. <laughs> crazy in love. We're meant to be crazy in love forever. How are you going to be crazy in love with just a force? You can only be crazy in love with a person and a wonderful person. And then there are religious, spiritual traditions that say God is a person, but they don't talk about a very lovable person. He's just this faceless man in a business suit in a big throne. Have you seen those Christian tracks? Heaven? Hell? Heaven? Hell? How are you going to love him? What does people fall madly in love with? I mean, you could be afraid of him. Okay, I see. You know, and he's, he's pretty mean, too. You've got one life where you have unequal starting points. It's one life, and people do not start at the same place, even in the Hare Krishna movement, we'll admit, we do not all start at the same place. We're not all starting at the same place. Some of you have an excellent opportunity, and some of you have a terrible opportunity, but you've only got one life, which may last anywhere from five minutes to 100 years. You don't know how long it's going to last. You have no idea when it's going to end, and you either surrender to me in this life or you're finished forever in a lake of fire. Now, love me. How are you going to love such a person? Would you love such another human? Okay, I'm your authority. You have five minutes. Love me, and I reward you, and don't love me, and I'm going to burn you forever. <laughs> I suppose I love you. What do I get to do? Well, you get to hang out with me and just say, Gloria, all the time. <laughs> Sounds like fun. So we're very lucky that we have... Krishna is so lovable. Who wouldn't want to be with Krishna? He's 15. Do y'all, I don't think we have any 15-year-olds here. Do y'all remember when we were 15? But he knows everything. Didn't we want to be like that? Knowing everything when we were 15? And he's all-powerful? But he's 15. He's a kid. And, you know, all respects to Handel, who said, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. But Krishna is not King of Kings. He's a prince. What does a prince do? Enjoys. He doesn't have any responsibility. Nandamars is the king. Ugrasen is the king. He's the prince. Even in Dwarka, he's a prince. He's not the king. He just plays. He's always playing wonderful feasts. His other friends, the other boys who are his friends, just playing all day in a, in a fantasy forest way beyond Disney with talking animals and talking trees and the trees can move and talk and sing and give you whatever you want. Kalpavriksha, Lakshavritesha. The cows give unlimited milk. Rivers that are just like nectar. Such graceful walking that it looks like dancing, even when they're walking. What to speak of when they are dancing. Talking that sounds like singing when they're talking. What to speak of when they're singing. When Lalita sings, the jeweled platforms around the trees melt and reform into other shapes. And the music, when Krishna plays his flute, immovable objects move and movable don't move. Everyone becomes stunned. Everything changes their characteristics. And when Shimati Radharani sings also like that. And then the sweet romance with his many girlfriends 
the, the secretive, playful, you know, the hidden romance with the sidelong glances and the double entendre and the speaking and the love between Krishna and Yasoda and Nandamaraj and the parental you know, as soon as they see Krishna, the women, their milk is coming from their breasts, their eyes are streaming with tears. Oh, Krishna, eat a little bit. Come eat a little More than any Bengali mother. <laughs> Sorry, you can't compete with Yasoda. Come, Krishna, eat a little And just joy. Simply joy. Varieties of joy, not just like, you know, varieties of joy. And adventure and stories and spies and secret messages and midnight meetings and continual variety and individuality. Who cannot become attracted to this understanding of truth? It's everything we want in, in any fantasy, in, in anything that we could possibly imagine the perfection of that. And it's our absorption in that which cuts our ties to illusion. Not hating the illusion. What to speak of hating the people who remind us that we're in illusion. That's our cure. Our process in the Hare Krishna movement is not meditating on how we're detached from illusion. It's not our process. And we've seen people try to have that process. I've seen, you know, the, the sannyasis, the lifetime monks, sit up here and say, those women, those women, those women, those family life, that family life. And the next thing you know, they're with a woman in family life. You're like, well, how did that Because that's what they're meditating on. So we're, we're told in, this, in the Shastra, the Bhagavatam has many, many examples of what happens when you allow your heart to be given to what's false. There's whole chapters like that. The forest of, of illusion, the hellish planets. And Krishna has sections of the Bhagavad Gita. You have to recognize the difference between illusion and reality. You have to be able to distinguish, Ishapanishad says. What is illusion? What is reality? You have to know. Therefore, illusion is described. But not so we meditate on that. So we meditate, so we know what to meditate on. You have to know the difference. You have to read the food labels. What's organically produced food and what's pesticide-drenched food so you can choose rightly. Now that's all. To, to engender discrimination. But our process is maya, maya, oh. Maya mana, what is it? First line, seven one. Maya shaktal mana parta, thank you. Maya Shakta You become a Shakti. You become attached to me. Not just thinking about Krishna. Yeah, I think about it. But become attached to Krishna. Meditate on Krishna. Meditate on his name, his pastimes, his form, his qualities, his devotees. Become absorbed in, in the reality. And then even in this life, even in this body, even as one is moving in this world, one will exist in another platform. And this, Krishna says, sixth chapter, when you relish and rejoice in the self. This is another problem. We think we should hate ourselves. Like we think we should hate the objects that remind us we're an illusion. We think we should hate ourselves also. No, Krishna says, relish and rejoice in the real self. 
not the illusory self. To relish and rejoice in the self within, that's freedom from all material miseries. That's actual freedom. So this we should be meditating on not just how much am I following the rules externally. The rules externally are meant to facilitate this attachment and meditation. That's their purpose. Like this building has the purpose of facilitating worship and meditation. The building has no value in and of itself. It's just a bunch of bricks and, and stones. So the, the rules, the systems, they are meant to act like a building that makes it easier for us, that facilitates us. But we should think every day, how many minutes of today, how many hours today have I been deep in meditation on the ultimate reality? And then detachment from illusion will happen naturally, just naturally. The other day somebody gave me a dessert that looked like cheesecake, but it wasn't cheesecake. They say what it is, it was farina, like semolina, cooked with water, and very, very, it was put into a mold, so it was solid. Just semolina and water into this solid mold. Looked like cheese. Oh, here's our dessert. So, if you have actual cheesecake, you will eat that. I mean, if you're really hungry, you might eat that. Or when I was in China, they make everything out of not everything. They make a lot of things out of sticky rice. So they brought out something I thought was halva. It was sticky rice with red beans in it. And then they brought out something else I thought it was a cake. It was sticky rice made in the shape of a cake with poppy seeds on it. Over and over again, they bring out things that look, oh, oh, this, oh, it's sticky rice. <laughs> Everything is sticky rice. So if you're really hungry, you know, if you haven't eaten for a couple days, then your semolina and water cube <laughs> might be very attractive. <laughs> but once you have cheesecake, nobody has to convince you with philosophy. Eat the cheesecake instead of the semolina water cube. You don't need some rule. You don't need someone to put the semolina water cube, you know, in a locked compartment. Naturally, you go, So this, our process should be that we become so filled with happiness and satisfaction in our relationship with Krishna that we look at things like lust and envy and we say, I that. What interest does it hold for me? So, short purport. Sukadeva Goswami continued. After saying this, the Lord disappeared. The wife of King Nabi, King Merudevi, was sitting by the side of her husband, and consequently she could hear everything the Supreme Lord had spoken. According to the Vedic injunctions, one should perform sacrifices in the company of one's own wife. Sapat Niko Dharmam Acharat. Religious rituals should be performed with one's wife. Therefore, Maharaj Nabi conducted his great sacrifice with his wife by his son. So we have just a little time. Questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements. Yes? Um, you were saying that, you know, like, uh, even like in modern science, there are people of different uh, IQ and mm. So as devotees, I might have a uh, 
some weakness of heart which is very hard to overcome other devotee can overcome it quite easily mm. so how does krishna help in overcoming that i'm actually finding it hard okay talking about two different things yeah first of all our material situation is not indicative of how much weakness of heart you have so we have we have materially unequal situations because of our previous karma we have spiritually unequal situation in terms of our qualify not in terms of our ontological essence our ontological essence who i am we are all equal there's absolutely no difference in terms of value and power and potency there's difference in terms of personality we have an eternal spiritual personality but there's no difference in terms of power and potency and substance between one soul and another but according to how much i have performed spiritual activities in my previous lives i am coming to this life with a certain amount of qualification because i keep you, you keep your spiritual qualification from one life to the next you don't keep your material qualification from one life to the next but you keep whatever you bank spiritually you have so some of us come here some of us start this life much further down the path and then it's not just amount it's kind so some of us have have achieved realization in certain areas of spiritual life that others have not so i may have certain realizations about some aspects of spiritual life that you don't have and you have realizations about some aspects that i don't have therefore some of us find certain parts of spiritual life very easy which other people find very difficult and vice versa and if let's just pick a number let's just say there's 20 aspects to realize So, you know, I have a lot of realization in three of them and a little bit in four and practically none in another and you know, and you're going to have a different mix. Now, one thing is we have to be careful and I didn't ask this, but we have to be careful about judging others because if I have a lot of realization in, some, in an area that someone else does not, I shouldn't think I'm better than they are. I mean, I shouldn't think I'm better than anybody, but I shouldn't think I'm better than them. Because probably they have more realization in another area than I do. All right. How do I deal? I think your question is how do I deal with the things that I particularly struggle with? So there's a general answer and then there's a specific answer which of course I can't give you a specific answer. When it comes to the specific things we need a guru, we need mentors, we need helpers, we need people who are more advanced at least in that area. By the way, my mentors don't have to be more advanced than me in everything. Just by the way. But I need to have a mentor who's more advanced than me at least in the area that I have a problem with and someone that I can trust. So someone who has competency and care. They have to care about me. If I know more than you but I don't like you, I'll use my greater knowledge to exploit you. So that's a problem. And if I care about you but I don't know anything, then you know, I may lovingly give you the wrong directions. So you have to have somebody who's a mentor who knows what they're doing and genuinely cares about you. Genuinely caring about you means taking the time to find out about your situation and guiding you for your situation and the guide for your situation by the way may be different from how you guide somebody else with a similar situation. Shri Prabhupada and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu would give sometimes very different instructions to two people who are apparently in similar situations because it's not just the situation it's your particular mentality what are you willing to do now? or we could say to you okay for this particular weakness this is the cure and you might say i'm not going to do that that's part of the of the mentoring 
And then we say, okay, what about this? Uh, I don't know. Okay, what about this? I don't know. Well, there's something over here that might prepare you to do this. Would you be willing to do that? Oh, yes, I'm willing to do that. Okay, fine. And someone else in the same situation, they're willing to do this already, or they're willing to do this. And you can't say one instruction is better or worse. Each, Just like Shri Prabhupada, most of Prabhupada's instructions, most of the instructions of the scripture are context-related. There's very, very few statements from Guru Sadhu and Shastra that are context-neutral. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand the terms I'm using? Yes. Okay. So there's some instruction. Like Krishna's the Supreme Personality of God, and always remember him, never forget him. The basically the Dasmulatat for Bhakti Notakur. That's context-neutral. But most of the of the instructions of Guru Sadhana and Shastra has a context. It's absolutely true in that context. It's not absolutely true context neutral. It just isn't. You can't take every every statement of Bhagavatam and apply it to all circumstances. It just won't work. You can't take every statement of Krishna and apply it to all circumstances. Krishna told his father, oh, you know, who cares about the gods? Right? That's not a context-neutral statement. So one reason that there's not just Shastra, one reason there's also Guru and Sadhus, is that we need, every one of us needs people in our life who show by example, the Sadhus show by example, how to apply the universal truths to certain situations, and then we need Guru, Gurus, Krishna has plural Gurus in Tadvadi Pranipatena, who can say to us, okay, this is, this is how you apply the scripture to yourself, and this is how you apply the scripture to yourself now. Like Prabhupada went to one of his disciples and said, you need to eat less. And the devotee said, but Prabhupada, you told me to eat a lot. Prabhupada said, did you believe me then? <laughs> don't believe me now. So the instructions may also change. You know, there may be, what's the instruction for dealing with the weakness now? may be very different in 10 years or 20 years. Because after you've done this nicely, now maybe you can go and do this. And after you've done this nicely, now maybe you can go and do this. So that's very specific, and I think that's important. Uh, And we who are teachers and we who are preachers should be very, very, very careful about giving blanket instructions to people about dealing with specific things whether it's positive or negative things. Like, everybody has to chant japa like this or something. That's, that's not the acharyas. In general, how do we deal with our weakness of heart? I've already talked about it. As a general way, uh, the general weakness of heart that Prabhupada gives in the purport to the last verse in the 15th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, I don't remember the number, I think it's 20, where he's paraphrasing Bhaktivinoda Thakur's summary of Bhagavad Gita chapter 15. And there, Raghunath Thakur says, the essential weakness of heart which we all have is the desire to be the center, the desire to be the Lord. And then we become attached to specific items of our Lordship. But the essential weakness of heart is just, I want to be Krishna. And I am part of Krishna, so I am Krishna-like. I am God-like. That's the essential weakness of heart, and it comes out in different flavors. I want to be the lord of material nature. It may come out one person wants to be the lord of material nature by smoking, one person by watching violent movies, one person by having 30 girlfriends, one person by owning a big 
skyscraper and having millions of dollars, another person by becoming a dictator in their office. I mean, everybody has that. Another person by owning 10 dogs, I mean, you know, whatever. Yelling at their children or sleeping too much. We all have our, how, how exactly it comes out in, in us, that will be. But the basic cure to wanting to this weakness of heart is to rejoice in the real center. To relish and rejoice in the self. To relish and rejoice in who I really am. To be happy with who I actually am. To stop trying to be something that I'm not. To love who I am. To love my real place and the real existence. To be totally authentic. And when you're totally authentic, it's wonderful. And then be once you experience that wonderful, your interest in the other thing will, will diminish. That's the only ultimate cure. But there may be intermediate steps and various external arrangements that persons can work with you as an individual over time to work out for you. Is that all right? Okay. Are we, should I stop now? Is there anybody else who has more questions? Yes. Ah, what should husband and wife do in terms of serving together? Well, first of all, they should see each other as souls. They should have affection for each other as a fellow soul. And if husband and wife are both on the spiritual path, which doesn't always happen, then they see this as my, my companion and my friend and my assistant on the spiritual path. Bhaktivinoda Tekwar has a wonderful poem. He said, I no longer see my family as mine. I see that I am a servant maintaining Krishna's household. So with a lot of affection, wonderful, wonderful. When Lord Brahma, 13th chapter of the tenth canto, the last chapter that Srila Prabhupada translates before he left this world, when Lord Brahma sees all of the Vishnu forms and he sees they're glancing at all living entities with passion. And this glance of the Lord, Prabhupada says, it has the original form of passion, which is affection. So to, the way to conquer the natural, passionate, exploitive mood between husband and wife is to come to spiritual affection to turn lust into love genuine affection as this is my fellow uh, traveler I mean of course husband and wife can also have the gross sexual relationship uh, we need wonderful children in the Hare Krishna movement but that should be done as yagya just like we offer wonderful food to the deity and we also enjoy that food so this is my partner in sacrifice, just like you're reading a husband and wife do sacrifice together. So having children together is also a kind of sacrifice. So you see like that. This is my partner in sacrifice. And please don't have your happiness dependent on making your husband happy with you. Because you'll not be a very satisfied person if you think my happiness in life and my spiritual standing depends on if my husband is always happy with me. Because sometimes your husband will be happy with you, and sometimes he won't. For exactly the same behavior, even. 
You know, one day you can make his favorite food and he says, oh, thank you, and the next day you make the same thing. He's like, why are you making the same thing two days in a row? Who knows? Or you had a bad day at work or something. You know, whether or not your husband is pleased with you is not something that you can control. You're one of the players. And thinking my happiness in life is due to my husband's being pleased with me, that's predicated on the idea that my husband is the source of my income, my home, my children, my clothes, my social standing. Which Lord Kapiladev says, if you think like that, then the love of your husband is like the call of the hunter for the deer. <laughs> Simply to fall you into a death trap. So do not think that my husband is my, my worshipful deity and his pleasure is everything in life. You should certainly try to please your husband, but not because you want to enjoy your husband's pleasure. You try to please your husband because what you want to enjoy is Krishna's pleasure. Prabhupada says with the Kura, when he's going to Vrindavan, he's meditating, Krishna will call me uncle Kura, and thus my whole life will be successful. And Prabhupada said, everyone should be working to be recognized by Krishna. And if you're not recognized by Krishna, your whole life is condemned. I was speaking to one couple the other day, and it was a couple where the woman really... She really needs a lot before she's happy with her husband. And she doesn't stay happy with him for very long. So he has to do a whole lot to make her happy. And then the happiness doesn't last long. Then immediately she has another demand. So this husband has tried to please his wife, and he gave up at one point. He just said, I don't care if you're happy with me. Not do whatever you want. I'm just going to do what I want. And that's not a very nice place to be. And then he started to deal with her affectionately, not to try to make her happy, because it didn't usually work, but for himself. So when I was visiting them, so the wife was like, why are you going out now? Why are you doing this? You're supposed to be doing this, and there's ten things you still haven't done in the house. Of course, if he does those ten things, she'll have another list of ten. <laughs> he knows that. You know? And he looks and he says, I love you, and my going out right now has nothing to do with whether or not I love you. I'll see you when I get back. And he walks out. And I talked about it, and he said, you know, since I've started doing that, I'm such a happier person. He said, it may not change my wife, but I'm happy. So that's something about what I'm talking about. That you're thinking, I'm going to treat my husband so nicely, so Krishna will look on me and smile, and when Krishna looks on me and smiles, I'll be happy. If my husband's grouchy today, it won't matter. Not that if my husband's grouchy today, my world has collapsed. Now I'm a failure as a devotee, I'm a failure as a wife. Or you yell at the husband, why aren't you being nicer than me? It's like, on and on and on. So all of our human relationships should be like that. And probably the most difficult is within the family, husband, wife, parents, children, parents, you know, in-laws, cousins, whatever. Because in the family, we really have an idea that this person is supposed to be the source of my happiness. My, the source of my happiness is my wife. And so if she's not giving me happiness, and you know, sometimes she's going to give you happiness, sometimes she won't. Sorry. You know, you can get the best wife in the world, and she's not always going to be a source of happiness to you. It's not that the problem is not the husband or the wife. It's not the problem. So if you're thinking, well, okay, I've got to keep my wife happy all the time. You know, good luck. 
okay, I'll buy her this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll, you know, the newlyweds are kind of like that. And after a while, they go, oh. But if you're thinking, I need to treat my wife with affection, with care, with protection, I need to cherish her. I need to make my wife believe that she's the most beautiful woman in the world to me. Even if she's gotten, you know, old and fat. She needs to believe. I never tell her that. Just like your husband should be a hero. Never tell your husband that he's a fool and incompetent. Even if he is. You know, that's what we're married for. He should be your hero. Why? Because you actually believe he's your hero? I hope not. But because that's, that's what will please Krishna. Then you can be peaceful together. And then you can travel on the path together and help each other. Like Rem Stain, there was an article about parents who have favorite children. It says, if you have a favorite child, you never tell them that. You always say, no, I love you equally. So you always go to your husband, you're my hero. Yeah, I see that you just broke the toaster, dear, but maybe this will really help us to do something wonderful in the future. Maybe this will be the way to get what you really wanted in a toaster. I, I know you're going to find a solution. You see as a hero. To please Krishna. Because Krishna wants us to have nice relationships. Not because you think that having nice relationships will give you happiness. I'm sorry. They won't. Forget it. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time that material, friendship, society, love is going to give you happiness. It's going to give you this much of the happiness you want. It will be frustrating and then you'll blame the other people. Don't even bother. Your spiritual relationship is what's going to make you happy. Your spiritual relationship with Krishna. And if you have a spiritual relationship with Krishna, everyone else is his part and parcel. He wants you to treat them nicely and appropriate to your specific relationship. So you think... My husband, he's Krishna's devotee. This is a person who's so dear to Krishna. Let me, how would Krishna want me to treat him? Just see Krishna's smile. And then you're free. Krishna says, and you've no need to depend on any other being. You're not dependent on your husband to maintain you. Krishna's maintaining you, but you make your husband think you're dependent on him. <laughs> what would I do with that? <laughs> I need you. No, you don't. <laughs> but that's the, the psychology. And then it's very nice. Then the, the modes go up and down, and this goes up and down. Your body chemicals go, especially women's body chemicals, go up. Well, you'll be free. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't you like to have a relationship that was free? that was not dependent on the other person's reciprocation for your happiness, that you were giving love and affection unconditionally, that you didn't have to keep score. There's all these relationship books, how men keep score, how women keep score. You gotta look at how does my wife keep score? Okay, see, I got three points today, gotta get another two. You could be free. And that's useful if you're conditioned. I mean, it's not, we're not denying that those things are useful. They are very useful. But ultimately, we wanna become free that I'm so satisfied for my relationship with Krishna, as King David said, my cup runneth over. That I, I'm, I'm, it's like, it's just like at Radhakund, there's a spring in the bottom that's filling up Radhakund. There's a spring in our heart. There's an unlimited spring of joy and satisfaction 
and relationship of love. That we, all we have to do is remove the plug of envy. Just take out the plug of envy and hatred. And your heart's, your heart's so full that you can just give love to everyone and whether they love you in return just doesn't matter. <laughs> if you just ate a big meal, what do you care if your host feeds you or not? You're already satisfied. It's immaterial. If you have millions and millions and millions of dollars, who cares if somebody gives you money? Just doesn't matter. Your, your relationship with them is not predicated on that. So when you're full with love for Krishna, you know, if your husband just goes to his room and goes to sleep after work and doesn't say, I love you, dear, your love for him isn't dependent on that. Wouldn't that be nice? And that's what the relationships are like in Vaikuntha. Their husbands and wives in Vaikuntha. And they love each other deeply. They have deep eternal love. Because they have Krishna, they actually have Krishna at the center. Krishna at the center doesn't just mean that there's a place in your house where you have an altar. Good step. And that isn't just what it means. It means that Krishna's, I'm connected with Krishna. And if only one person is, there, it doesn't depend. The other person doesn't have to have that in order for you to feel satisfied. So I think we should end here. Thank you very much for having me here in Sydney. Wonderful temple. Nice to be back. Oh, well, you should have come. Thank you. Uh, thank you, for the beautiful class. And, Mataji, uh, do you have a to speak? I think somebody's setting something up for